Uh, please remain standing and turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Luke, chapter 2, verses 8 to 21. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there is with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is the word of God. Holy Spirit, we come to worship you. We come to hear from you and we come to receive from you. And we just ask that you would meet us here now and speak to our hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Go ahead and take a seat. While we've been at Seattle Children's Hospital, uh, the third floor Starbucks has become somewhat of a second home office for me. Uh, I'll grab coffee there, I'll sit and enjoy the holiday vibes and the holiday music, I'll work and I'll write. Um, but it's also become this special sacred place in, in the hospital for fellowship and, and random chance encounters. I've had meetings with people there, I've met and talked with strangers, um, shared stories, um, and then I get to pray with these random people that I meet. And in this Starbucks, in, in light of the Christmas season, on the back wall, there's this small station with little circles cut out of construction paper to look like ornaments, and then a black cup of pens and tape along with a little, a little handmade sign reading, Christmas Wishes. Strung up on the wall are these little ornaments with wishes written on them. And there's like a, there's a whole variety of wishes. You know, a few slips say things like AirPods or a new Lego set. Um, but a lot of slips say things like, I just want my baby home for Christmas. I, I want to put uh, ornaments on the tree as a family. Or I just want to cozy up on the couch with my parents, drink hot chocolate, and watch holiday movies. And then there are more that say things like, this Christmas, I need a miracle. This Christmas, my wish is for a cure for my leukemia. My wish is for my son's operation to go well, for my sister to get better, for my child 
to live. I walk down the halls daily, and these are the sights that I see. A six-year-old walks with her parent while simultaneously wheeling her own IV and using that same pole to support herself. A nurse and a physical therapist helps another child take one step at a time with his walker. Meanwhile, a gurney rolls by wheeling another toddler off to a procedure. You know, kids as old as the kids we see running around our church with gaunt faces and, and no hair because they've been going through weeks of chemo. And this is the norm here. On any given day, on our floor, there might be a flood of doctors, surgeons, and nurses rushing in to perform an emergency procedure. On a regular basis, we see rooms vacated and emptied, not knowing if the child who occupied that room was discharged and got to go home to be with their family, or if they just didn't make it. And as we as a community meditate on the theme of joy together, especially in the midst of you know, the things that we have going on in our lives, I can't help but ask myself this question. What about them? Do these kids get joy? And while we stress over our Christmas shopping lists and family dinners, do these kids get joy? We drag our tired bodies through the motions of the season while others merely dream of being able to go through the motions. And as a pastor, sometimes I wish I could just snap my finger and transport all of us to Seattle Children's Hospital for a week so that we could witness the brutality of life in a sin-torn world. Maybe then we'd hate sin a little more. And I don't mean to belittle the real problems that you and I all have and the real struggles that we endure, but you do get a lot of perspective when you are in places where the everyday environment, where the air around you is one of inescapable pain, sickness, suffering, and death. If we really follow Jesus, it is inevitable that you will be led into places of pain and brokenness. So while it would have been nice to spend our Thanksgiving and our Christmas season at home, we have treasured our time at the hospital because we get to be in the midst of heroes. And I mean both patients as well as doctors and nurses. And for some kids, going to school, playing on the playground, and then coming home to two parents in a warm home is the norm. For other kids, Fighting for their lives is the norm. And yet, Amanda and I, we also get to see victory. And, believe it or not, somehow joy in this place. The six-year-old wheeling her own IV down the hall also happens to be smiling and running her free hand over the colored lights on the wall. The kid with tubes extending from this big machine into his abdomen also happens to be dancing. And when I shared this with my therapist, he replied, well, it looks like brutality doesn't stand a chance. And somehow there is joy and wonder in spite of the circumstances. And darkness doesn't stand a chance against that. And so I ponder these two questions side by side. One, 
do these kids get joy? But two, how do these kids who are going through things no one should have to go through, how do they harness and hold such joy despite their circumstances? Maybe our norm isn't fighting for our lives in the ICU, but I think we also wrestle with that question. Is joy for me? Because we either spend most of our lives chasing things other than joy, or we want joy, but we struggle to find the true paths that lead to it. You know, maybe we've searched for joy, but we've come up empty-handed, and so we settle for less. You know, we substitute deep joy for cheap pleasures and distraction. I mean, anyone here feel like joy is just too lofty and too unattainable, and so you figure, why even bother? As you cue the next show, book that next vacation, buy those new shoes, post that next selfie, or pour another drink. Or maybe our internal struggles with self-hate, our mental health, and our depression has led us to a point where we feel like we don't even deserve joy. And maybe we don't even feel like we deserve love. And so we find ourselves falling again and again and again into these self-destructive, self-harming cycles, all the while thinking that this is what we deserve. And if this is the state of our internal lives, why bother with Advent? Why bother with Christmas? Is joy really for me? Maybe you've even asked, is Jesus for me? I'm not so sure. But these are the questions I want to confront today. And to do that, we need to go back to the very beginning. Hopefully you still have your Bibles open. Uh, Keep a finger on Luke 2 and turn with me back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. We're going to pick it up at verse 27. Share with your neighbor if you don't have a Bible. Make a friend. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Now, think of all the things that take away our joy. A lot of us probably feel like we would be better off or happier if we had more of this or that. Maybe if I just had a bit more money. Not to be filthy rich, you know, just to have a bit more cushion. Or maybe you do want to be filthy rich, I don't know. Life would be better if I had a new wardrobe. Or maybe if I could finally buy a house. Or life would be a lot more comfortable if we had enough money to afford that. Feelings of of discontent and fear of scarcity takes away joy. And we're afraid of not having enough. We're afraid of destitution. 
And so we always long for more. We always long for that next new thing, the next best thing, always grasping for more. But notice how here in Genesis we see the opposite. We see provision and abundance. God blesses Adam and Eve, and he provides for them and all of creation with everything that they need. He essentially says, behold, I have given you all that you need to survive and thrive. And then a little while later, God says, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And so not only does God provide for physical sustenance, he provides all relational needs. But today, how much of our drama and our grief stem from relationship failures? And I'm not just talking about romantic relationships. You know, we are living through the breakdown of the family, community, and relationship. Loneliness is, by and large, the norm. Divorce rates skyrocket. Family brokenness is rampant. Hyper-individualism and digital connectivity is destroying real, deep connection and friendship. Relationship, this beautiful thing that God created for us to enjoy is under attack, and it's suffering. And our, our ideas of relationship and what it should be constantly shift with the ever-changing tides of the culture around us. And so we suffer from unmet, distorted, and misguided expectations. Relationship, instead of being grounds for joy, seems to more often be grounds for disappointment and hurt. This is not the way it was in the Garden of Eden. God provided for Adam and Eve's relational needs. And above that, Adam and Eve enjoyed perfect relationship and connection to God. And out of that, they had all that they needed. There was no scarcity, no insecurity, and no fear. They never had to grasp. We were made for relationship. We were made to love and be loved. Lastly, Adam and Eve had identity. God created humans in his image. We bear his image. We are his creation. This identity is the foundation of our worth and dignity. And we're all for human rights. This is the basis of human rights. But it's actually not the case today. Instead of being firmly rooted in our God-given identity, we spend our entire lives chasing other false identities and find ourselves not full of joy, but rather full of insecurity and feelings of worthlessness that we then inflict on others. Instead of being firmly rooted in our God-given purpose, we are lost, wandering, always searching for meaning and purpose, tossed to and fro by our changing minds in the midst of a changing culture. So in sum, in the garden, there was abundance, relationship, and identity. In the beginning, God made humans in his image and brought us into a world of provision and abundance, into a world of perfect relationship with him and with each other, into a world of perfect identity meaning, and purpose. So, in the beginning, there was joy. We were brought into a world of joy. 
In other words, we were made for joy. As much as we struggle with joy, finding joy, feeling like we deserve or don't deserve joy, even fearing joy, we were made for joy. And so the truth is that joy is for us. Joy is for you and for me. Joy is for us because God is for us. We were made for joy because we were made for God. We were made to be with God who is the source and the giver of joy. It's God who provides Adam and Eve with abundance, relationship, and identity. It's God who provides them with love and security. Perfect joy stems from perfect union with God. My friends, if you only take away one thing today, let it be this. You were made for joy because you were made for God. Sin is what gets in the way of this. I've shared this quote before, but I want to repeat it again today. Ignatius of Loyola states, Sin is the unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. And this is our great curse. We don't think God wants us to be happy. So we search for joy everywhere else but God. And time and time and time and time again, we come up empty-handed. Perfect relationship with God, the joy giver, severed. Relationship with each other, distorted and broken. Abundance is traded for constant discontent, dissatisfaction and grasping. Identity misplaced. Good intention with evil. Beauty stained by destruction and decay. And joy? Who's got time for joy? Is there really any hope for joy? Or is it a lost cause? Is there hope for joy amidst the unrest, the anxiety, the sorrow, the guilt, and the shame that we live in? These are the questions on our heart today. And this was likely the question on the hearts of people 2,000 years ago. It was likely the question on the hearts of Zechariah and Elizabeth as they waited for what felt like forever for God to keep his promise. All the while having their hopes of having children completely crushed. It was likely the question on the hearts of people like Mary, Joseph, Simeon, and really any Jew living under the terror of Roman rule. Is there really any hope for joy? Is joy for me? Or is it only for those at the top of society? Is joy for the oppressed? Or is it only for the oppressor? And out of this, late one night, an angel comes with this message. I bring good news of great joy. Flip back with me to Luke chapter 2. I'll pick it up at verse 8 again. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you Good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Who here has ever wondered, why shepherds? <laughs> 
Like on the night that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was born. Why did the angel go and share this wonderful news with shepherds first? In Phoebe's room at the hospital, we have this great big basket of books, thanks to our lovely friends at the Seattle Public Library. Uh, But one book that we've been reading to Phoebe from the time she was in the womb up until now has been the Jesus Storybook Bible. Side note, I love children's Bibles. Some of them are really good. So we read from the ESV a moment ago, uh, but before we continue, I want to read a snippet of this same account from the Storybook Bible because I think it captures the point really well. It looks like this. Now, where would you send your splendid choir of angels? To a big concert hall, maybe? Or a palace, perhaps? God sent his to a little hillside outside a little town in the middle of the night. He sent all those angels to sing for a raggedy old bunch of shepherds watching their sheep outside Bethlehem. In those days, remember, people used to laugh at shepherds and say they were smelly and call them other rude names, which I can't possibly mention here. You see, people thought shepherds were nobodies, just scruffy old riffraff. But God must have thought shepherds were very important indeed, because they're the ones he chose to tell the good news to first. So why shepherds? Why didn't the angels, I don't know, appear first to religious people? Why didn't they go to the temples first? Why didn't they go to the kings first? Hold that thought for a moment. Who here has ever asked the question, is Jesus really for me? Or maybe you thought, Jesus, Christianity, I mean, that works for some people. I'm not really the religious type, not really my thing. Anybody? Maybe, maybe you feel that now. Even. Maybe you feel like Christianity is just an old, archaic religion for conservative white men. Anyone, anyone ever feel that? I mean, it's not hard to feel that these days. But you should also know that the majority of Christians around the world are not white men, but in fact are women of color. Maybe you feel like Christianity is your parents' religion. Maybe you feel like they needed some spirituality to lean on. But we're smarter now. We're more sophisticated. We've got science and technology, Wikipedia and iPhones. We know better. Or maybe you feel like Jesus just doesn't know your particular struggle. Maybe you feel like the Bible is not relevant to your life and that Christianity is just too general to address your specific needs. Perhaps you think, sure, Jesus might have come down. He might have died for my sins. But that doesn't solve my financial struggles. Sure, Jesus might be the son of God. But how will that help me through finals week? Or maybe you're just like, Jesus, you don't know me. You don't know my pain. According to Luke here, the angel doesn't go to religious people. The angel doesn't go to the elite or the sophisticated. And notice how the angel doesn't say, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for Jews only, 
or for Romans, or for good and well-behaved people, or rich people, or clean people. It's not what he says. The angel says, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. If I were one of those shepherds, I'd be like the rest of them. I'd be scared out of my mind. But then I would be like, joy? (laughs) You bring news of joy. I haven't heard much of that. But then I would be like, wait, did you say joy for all the people? And does that include me? Oh, it does. You You bring news of joy for me. I'm poor. I'm dirty. I'm scruffy. I haven't showered in a week. And I'm at the bottom of the social ladder. But you bring good news of great joy for me. Hmm. Ever since July, we've been getting a lot of extra mail at our house because now Phoebe gets mail. She's not even five months old. She gets mail. She gets more mail than I do. And I'm not going to lie. It's pretty crazy seeing mail with her name on it. And maybe you remember this from your own childhood, but as she grows, as she learns to recognize her name, and as she learns to read, she will eventually ask, for me? This is for me? Someone sent this for me? And we'll be like, yeah, sweetie, it's for you. And I imagine that this is, this is probably close to what the shepherds felt. They're like, for me? Like waking up Christmas morning to see the most extravagant gift with your name on it, without a name indicating who it was from. Maybe a secret admirer. Man, how special do you think they felt? God, the creator of the universe, Lord over all, sends his angels bearing the greatest news of all time to a raggedy group of shepherds hanging out in the middle of nowhere. If you were God, where would you send your angels to first? Or imagine you're Jesus. You're just starting out your ministry and you need some disciples. Who would you choose? Oh, how about a couple of uneducated fishermen? How about a a Roman sympathizing tax collector? How about a violent political extremist? And maybe a stealing backstabber just for good measure. As it turns out, that's exactly who Jesus picks. Very curious, wouldn't you say? But friends, here is the simple truth. The message that God brings through his angel is that there is good news and that it is for all people. In Isaiah 49, 6, God says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. In other words, it's too small a thing to just make salvation available to some people. I'll make it available to all people. 
Just a little while later, Luke chapter 2, which we read two weeks ago, Simeon sings out, My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Again, all people, Jews and Gentiles or non-Jews. After Jesus' resurrection, he commands his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Again, two words, all people. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Good news for all people, Jews, Gentiles, people of all ethnicities, people of all socioeconomic backgrounds, people of all cultures, people of all tribes, people of all political parties, people of all social circles, people like you and me, all people. And what is this good news of great joy that is for you and for me? The angel goes on. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And then the angel tells them how to find Jesus. This great news, guess what? It can be found. And then they sing a worship song after that. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So today's message is So simple, my friends. This good news is for us. Jesus is for all people, and that includes you and me. And because of that, joy is for you and for me. Jesus is for you, and I mean that in two ways. ways. He is for you in the way that oxygen is for you, He is our greatest need. But he is also for you in the way that your parents, your mentors, and your role models are for you. His mission is your freedom and joy. And it just so happens that your path to that joy is him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, who heard that and was just like, dang, I knew it was going there. Like who here, who here has ever been frustrated that Jesus was always the answer you got? Like you share your struggles and issues with someone who happens to be a Christian. And after listening, they just say something akin to, hey, you just need Jesus. And so you're like, that's the last time I share my problems with a Christian or a pastor. It's okay, I get it. You know, there'll be times where I'm talking with someone, listening to them and their problems, and then I speak. And as they sense my words going anywhere near gospel or God territory, their eyes start to like drift off. Now, maybe, maybe there has been some oversimplification in the lack of nuance in that Jesus answer you got. But I think if we dive deep into the nuance and the heart of our own struggles we'll find that it's true. Either that, or we'll find there's just no viable solution to our issues other than something divine and out of this world. 
History has shown again and again that human problems can never ultimately be solved through human means. A couple weeks ago, we talked about dissecting our fears and desires. Because at the deepest core level of each and every one of our desires and fears is a soul need that cannot be met by anything else. Our souls long for the things of Eden, the things that Adam and Eve enjoyed before the fall. Relationship, abundance, and identity. Friends, the good news is that Jesus comes to bring us back to Eden. Underneath our desire for more financial cushion, for wealth, or possessions and accumulation is a fear of not having enough. It's the fear of scarcity and destitution. This is life outside of the garden, away from God's love. But Jesus comes to bring us back to Eden, back to God's love and provision, back to a life of abundance, not by blessing us with more material riches, but by satisfying our deepest need through offering us all of himself. Underneath our desire for approval and for people to like us is the fear that we are unworthy and unlovable. No one will love us. It's us believing the lie that we are not worthy of love combined with the fear of loneliness. And because of these fears, every relationship we enter, platonic or romantic, is polluted by our own insecurities and distorted expectations. And we inflict our brokenness onto others. But Jesus comes to bring us back into a life of secure, unending, undying, steadfast love. He does so, again, by offering us all of himself. And when we are assured, when we are confident of his love for us, only then can we be free to begin to love others with a love that isn't tainted by our insecurities and expectations. Jesus brings us back to Eden. Underneath our need to perform, our people-pleasing, our perfectionism, and even our need to fit in is an identity struggle. And this is crippling because as, as hard as we try to perform well, to fit in, there's always the fear that one day we'll fail, we'll be exposed, people will see us as an imposter, and then we'll be ruined. Identity issues are always tied to fear. But Jesus comes to give us back our truest through him, through his death on the cross for our sins, our identity is restored. We are again God's people, God's children, his beloved. And that's an identity that we don't even have to work for. This is our greatest need, and Jesus meets it who here has ever been in love? Who here has ever been in love while being a poor college student? Remember, the, remember feeling you know, that, your, that your greatest need was for that someone to like you back. 
And remember, when that special someone finally did like you back. Remember how all other needs just receded into the back of your mind. Like they weren't important anymore. I don't care that all I eat is instant ramen. I don't care that I have four finals to study for. I love her and she loves me and nothing else matters. When we discover our deepest and greatest need, forgiveness of our sins, salvation and freedom from being controlled and mastered by our desires and fears, and when we discover that Jesus meets those needs, everything else matters so much less. And it doesn't mean that we we just get to ignore the rest of our lives or that our problems don't matter at all. But it does mean that everything else falls in its proper place beneath our relationship and communion with God. This is good news of great joy that is for all people. Jesus is good news of great joy for you and for me. And I know we're a quiet bunch, and I know better than to risk asking you to say something out loud, but I will say amen to that. And you can just say it in your hearts. Friends, joy is for you and for me because Jesus is for you and for me. He came for you and for me. He is coming for you and for me. A couple weeks ago, I was having coffee with someone who was getting really annoyed with God. And it was both a funny and amazing conversation that I'll paraphrase like this. This person shared with me. I feel like God won't stop chasing me. And he keeps loving me. And it feels weird, and I don't know what to do about it. And I just sat and listened with like this, this growing grin on my face. And my only reply was, interesting. But in my mind, I was like, what a great problem to have. Jesus loves you, and you don't know what to do about it. You can no longer deny the fact that Jesus is coming for you, that he keeps coming after you. And you don't know what to do about it. Interesting, right? And then I asked, would you like me to stop? Would you like me to pray and ask him to stop? No reply after that. But guess what? This is all of our stories. Jesus loves you and he won't stop loving you. He came for you. He is coming for you right now. And he won't stop coming after you. And maybe you feel it even. And it feels strange, exciting, and uncomfortable all at the same time. That tends to be how grace makes us feel. But this is the truth of Advent and Christmas. God loves you. He loves you in spite of your flaws and failings. God loves you and God is for you. He is for your joy. He wants your deepest happiness. He wants you to live your best life. As I prayed for God to heal my daughter, I prayed, God, you love Phoebe more than I do. Because it's true. He loves Phoebe more than I do. He loves Amanda more than I do. I love you guys, but he loves you more than I do. Thank God for that. Here in the Gospels, in a time when it seemed like joy was only for the Roman, the ruling class, 
the wealthy. And when some might have believed that the Messiah was only for Jews, the angel reminds us that Jesus is for everyone. And because of that, joy is for everyone. And so today, when it seems like joy is only for certain people, for those optimistic extroverts or for people for whom everything just always seems to go right, when it seems like Jesus is only for certain people, the angel's message rings equally true. Joy is for you because Jesus is for you. Jesus is as much for the houseless person on the street corner in Seattle as he is for the suburban teenager. Jesus is as much for the poor single mother as he is for the wealthy workaholic CEO. Jesus is as much for the stressed out college student struggling with anxiety as he is for the child battling cancer in the hospital. He is as much for the person of color protesting racism as he is for the white supremacist. He is as much for the Republican as he is for the Democrat. He is as much for the LGBTQ community as he is for the refugees fleeing Ukraine. He is as much for the staunch atheist as he is for the persecuted missionary. Jesus is for all. He is for you and for me. So to conclude, how do we receive this good news? How do we accept and receive this gift? Now, how do we live into and experience this reality more and more each day? Because if someone told me a mysterious divine being loved me with the most amazing love, I would want to learn how to open myself up to the experience of that love more and more. I would want to feel it. Wouldn't you? First, if you haven't, repent. Repent and believe that Jesus is your only Savior. This is how we know that Jesus is for all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Repent. Turn away from sin and towards Jesus. Accept his invitation out of your old life and into new life. This is where it all begins. Next, fortunately, the text here points us to the right response through all of the characters involved. First, the angels. Luke writes, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So first response, worship. In this season of Advent, worship is the language and practice of both remembrance and anticipation. When we worship, we draw to mind the character and the work of God his history of faithfulness. We meditate on who he is and how he loves. And as we remember, as we practice remembering, our eyes become opened to the reality and the experience of that love in our lives. 
And we anticipate and long for Jesus to come in glory all the more. Second, we see how the shepherds respond. First, they're scared out of their minds. But after hearing the message of the angels, they say to each other, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they hurry to find Mary, Joseph, and baby Jesus. And then look at what they do when they find Jesus. And the shepherds return, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and had seen as it had been told them. They worship, just as the angels did. So second response, go and seek. Who is this Jesus? What is this love? What is this joy? Go, seek, and find out. Jesus himself says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. So dig deep. Search for him and you will find him. Make space for him in your lives and he will meet you. Invite him and he will come to you. Go and seek. Sunday is one step, small group is another, but don't limit yourself to programmed group activities. Jesus wants you personally, so make space and seek him personally. Lastly, we get to Mary's response. Luke writes, But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. So third, meditate on God. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Keep his love and his joy at the forefront of your mind. Channel David when he writes in Psalm 63, I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. And in Psalm 119, I will meditate on your word and fix my eyes on your ways. We do this through things like prayer and reading the Bible, but don't let this limit your imagination. Your prayer doesn't have to be confined that you spend in your, it doesn't have to be confined to the time you spend in your room on your knees. I find that sometimes I'm most deeply drawn into prayer when I just go walk my dog or go out for a run. And then right there, Jesus is my running buddy. I get to fix my eyes on him when I'm exercising and I'm enjoying the outdoors. We can be in prayer when we go hiking or just spend time sitting out in nature or at a cozy coffee shop. We can be in prayer or in the word on the bus on our commutes. I start my day with Jesus and I end my day with Jesus because I want to have Jesus saturate my being and my life. I want his love, his hope, his peace, and his joy to sink deeper and deeper into my bones every day because I am forgetful and I am prone to wander. I'm prone to chase after other things. Maybe you are too. As Jesus becomes the apple of our eye, our greatest thought and meditation, as he becomes our greatest love and the king of our hearts, all of our desires and our fears fall into their proper place. And we find that contentment and peace that isn't dependent on circumstances is possible. We'll find that joy finally gets a chance to take root, grow, and bloom. We'll find that hope is never lost. And we'll find that we are so, so 
loved by our God. Why not receive this? Why not receive him? Why not say yes to Jesus and yes to joy? Let us stand and pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for good news. And thank you that this good news is for each and every one of us. God, we thank you that Jesus is for each and every one of us. We thank you that your love does not discriminate. We thank you that your love doesn't depend on our feelings. It doesn't depend on what we do or don't do. We thank you that all we have to do is receive your love by receiving you. And so this morning, on this fourth Advent Sunday, we pray for receptive hearts. We pray that you would soften our hardened hearts. We pray that you would lead us to say yes And we pray that you would come, that you would touch us, that you would enter into our lives in new and amazing ways. And we pray that as we surrender to you, that all of our other desires and fears that would seek to rule over us and control us and master us, that they would just fall. Hear our prayer, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.